there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 33, the story of Chicago's own bathhouse John Coughlin and Michael Hinkydink Kenna. Winters in Chicago were always bitterly cold. The 14th of December, 1908, was no exception. What wasn't typical, however, was the traffic. A huge crowd jammed South Wabash Avenue, headed for the Chicago Coliseum. This was the home of the First Ward Ball, an annual political fundraiser met with equal parts revulsion and fascination by the general public. Inside the Coliseum, the reek of booze and gasoline, a choice perfume for working girls, filtered around the crowd. Madams paraded their youngest and most desirable employees down through the main thoroughfare. Watching them were drunk saloon owners, cops, pimps, and politicians. In other words, the Chicago elite. One floor below, the bacchanalia continued. Men fought with fists and knives, knocking over beer kegs. At the center of it all was bathhouse John Coughlin, king of the drunken orgy, dressed in a silk suit and top hat with a madam on each arm. His partner, Michael Hinkydink Kenna, sat quietly in the back, chewing an unlit cigar. He was keen to take note of who showed face at the political event of the year. For bathhouse John and Hinkydink, the party was a symbol of what they could do with Chicago's power players when they were at the center pulling the strings. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. By the 1850s, Chicago was filling up. A flood of immigrants from Ireland, Germany, and Italy flocked to the so-called Second City. Chicago's nickname, coined much later, made sense. The city's population was second only to New York by 1890. As with New York and other growing mid-century metropolises, these new arrivals tended to group together along ethnic lines. In a scary new place, Having a support system of people who spoke your language was a massive comfort. And Chicago at that time was scary. The city had earned itself a reputation for violence and crime. 
Burglaries, muggings, and assaults were rampant throughout all but the wealthiest parts of the city. Frequent and violent labor strikes added to the Wild West air. Nevertheless, families took root in Chicago, a boomtown with opportunity far beyond what any of their European homes could offer. Irish immigrants, in particular, fled oppressive British rule and the potato blight, setting up small communities in the Midwest monolith. One of these burgeoning Irish neighborhoods was Connolly's Patch, an oasis of family life among the chaos and crime. The neighborhood sat in Chicago's first ward, a narrow tract of the city that contained both the wealthiest downtown district and the notorious Vice District. This Vice District was lovingly, or disparagingly, depending on who you talk to, known as the Levy. It was into this dichotomy of wealth and poverty, depravity and wholesomeness, that our corrupt duo was born. Partnerships are often built on a balance of similarities and differences, the yin and yang, so to speak. And no duo was quite as different as Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John, at least on the surface. Before the men earned their iconic nicknames, they were born in Connolly's Patch as children of Irish immigrants. Michael Kenna was born in August of 1857. John Coughlin followed three years later in August of 1860. Let's just say that Bathhouse John grew up big and strong, towering over his teenage companions. Hinky Dink, on the other hand... Hinky Dink stood at just five foot four. Though the origins of his nickname remain a mystery, the man himself shied away from the obvious diminutive connotations. Neither Bathhouse John nor Hinky Dink were highly educated men. Both chose to enter the workforce young, which was not an unusual move at the time. Hinky Dink, the more reserved of the two, decided to stretch his political legs as a newsboy, hawking papers on the street. Meanwhile, Bathhouse John bounced between simple jobs, his favorite being a janitor. He would be the first of the duo to find his true calling and the impetus for his nickname. Among the popular wheel-and-deal destinations for men of power in the First Ward was the Turkish bathhouse. The steam room provided a venue for open dialogue and relaxed discussion. It was a stark contrast to the packed beer halls and restaurants where councilmen usually met to hash out matters of the ward. Bathhouse John was considered a rubber, turn-of-the-century American parlance for masseur. He loved being close to men of power and means, and in time, was able to charm his way into the First Ward political scene. Bathhouse's first champion was Joseph Mackin, boss of the First Ward Democrats. Bath was a known entity at the baths and other levy establishments, like brothels and gambling houses. Mackin pegged Bathhouse John as just the type to fit in with the other First Ward Democrats. He was passionate and chummy, loud, but not annoying. Most of all, he could walk the line between being affable and being a doormat. But Bathhouse couldn't rely on his personality alone to impress the rulers of the First Ward. He needed more clout to climb the ranks of Chicago's Democratic machine. And one spot was the perfect place to begin his political journey, Billy Boyle's Chop House. Billy Boyle kept his list of diners exclusive. 
To deter strangers off the street, Billy handed out special menus with prices so high they'd leave for a more reasonable saloon. It was a sure bet to keep the long benches at Billy's open each lunchtime for the First Ward Democrats to discuss business. But it wasn't Billy Boyle or the other low-ranking politicians that Bathhouse John was desperate to charm. In the levee, crime bosses ran the show. And in the late 1880s, no crime boss was bigger than Michael King Mike McDonald. King Mike ran a gambling house called The Store, one of the first of its kind in the levee. The store was an experience, complete with food, drink, and fine embellishments. Local politicians felt at home here, comfortable enough to meet with King Mike without having to hide their faces on the way out. The business being discussed in places like the store, as Bathhouse John would quickly learn, was the exchange of money for protection or preferential treatment. City officials looked the other way when it came to illegal gambling houses, after-hour saloons, or brothels if they were receiving regular protection payments. This process extended to everyone. Dealers in vice, like King Mike, and sausage stand salesmen both had to pay to play in the First Ward. At the time, newspapers like the Chicago Tribune referred to this process as boodling. Today, we'd call it graft or bribery. The concern of the boodlers, as they were called, was never the public interest. If a gas line was requested, it was approved only if money could be skimmed from the project. The greedy, self-concerned men involved were known in Chicago as the Gray Wolves. While Bathhouse John made inroads with the Gray Wolves, rubbing shoulders and indulging in lunches of lamb and black coffee, Hinky Dink was already enjoying the cash benefits of vice in the First Ward. He was well-versed in how to turn a profit by doling out the supply to meet demand. In his teens, Hinky Dink set up a tiny shack in his neighborhood slinging nickel beers. He named it the Little Madison. This first endeavor gave Hinky Dink a taste for one of the most reliable business models in history, selling drinks at a profit. Though stunningly, Hinky Dink was never a drinker in his life, the public's lust for drink was not lost on him. And pre-prohibition, working-class Chicago was thirsty. Drinking, beer in particular, was integral to the many immigrant cultures of the First Ward. The rise of the temperance movement failed to curb the clip at which Chicago saloons were built. By the time he reached his 20s, Hinky Dink realized two crucial aspects when it came to the business of beer. Beating the competition and avoiding the gaze of the law. Competition among saloons was fierce in the First Ward. Hinky Dink had to find a way to attract more customers than his neighbors. After all, what would make a tired worker trek six miles from the Union Stockyards to Van Buren Street after an exhausting shift? Two words. Free food. By offering customers a snack with the purchase of beer, Hinky Dink was able to outsell most other local saloons and kept his customers inside longer. To drink more, of course. And the local politicians took note. Suddenly, Hinky Dink's saloon was advertising for various political campaigns, always Democrats, of course. He also offered a payment of 50 cents or more for proof that a customer did his civic duty on Election Day. In return, policemen looked the other way when the crowd inside Hinky Dink's saloon lingered after hours. 
Hinky Dink's service was so influential, in fact, that it helped his soon-to-be partner gain notoriety well before the two officially met. After taking up the mantle as president of the local Democratic Club, bathhouse John Coughlin wanted more. The next logical step was to run for aldermen of the First Ward. Aldermen were like mini-mayors. Becoming one would rank Bathhouse John among the men he admired and give him direct access to those moving money in and out of the ward. From 1890 to 1891, Bathhouse John toiled in the First Ward trying to build himself a better reputation. But his favorite hobby would soon put him at odds with the Democratic elite. Up next, Bathhouse John's horse racing habit ruins his chances with the Democrats. And now, back to the story. By 1891, Bathhouse John Coughlin was clawing his way up the Democratic ladder in Chicago. And with some financial freedom coming from his very own booming bathhouse, he finally had the means to indulge in one of his passions, horse racing. Horse racing had long fascinated Bathhouse John. Now he was finally able to purchase a horse, which he named Mary, after his first wife. The two-legged Mary was said to be less than impressed. Unhappy wife aside, Bathhouse John dove headfirst into his hobby. He spent much of his time on the west side of Chicago at Garfield Park, a major destination for horse racing fans. But there was a problem. At that time, Chicago real estate was a tantalizing slab of prime beef, ready to be cut up and doled out. Rail prospectors, members of the gas trust, and streetcar companies saw the city's swelling population, and they all wanted their peace. Lying in the middle of a very coveted patch of land was Garfield Park. This area was perfect for an above-ground rail line. Companies placed bids, and the outfit that promised the most cash in hand for the aldermen would win the contract, even if that meant the taxpayers footing an unnecessarily steep price for the project. Bathhouse John rejected it. Vetoing the Garfield Park Railway wasn't out of moral obligation. He simply wanted to see his favorite horses keep running at his favorite track. Clearly still green in his political intuition, Bathhouse John hadn't quite grasped the game played by the Grey Wolves. If you want to impress the local Democratic crime syndicate, take on any civic project that promised the higher-ups bribe money. Bathhouse John's rejection of the proposal ultimately held little weight, but it made him unpopular with the Grey Wolves. Suddenly, his campaign for aldermen was considered dubious, if not downright ill-advised. It was a hard-learned lesson for the aspiring alderman. Sometimes you had to go with the crowd to keep the political machine running. Bathhouse John knew from that moment on to lose a pet cause was but a small sacrifice in the long run. Despite his poor spirits, Bathhouse John knew that one man in Chicago could salvage his reputation. Michael Hinkydink Kenna. The two met on a quiet afternoon in 1892. Hinky Dink listened patiently as Bathhouse John waxed poetic about his troubles and aspirations. He even claimed he had the ear of Mayor Harrison, a known boodler himself. 
Hinky Dink was oddly sympathetic. Granted, he wasn't obligated to provide Bathhouse John with any more than the routine niceties he offered other aldermen. However, the conversation convinced both men that they'd make a fearsome duo. Together, they'd create a singular force, with Bathhouse John as the face of the operation and Hinky Dink as the brains. Against anyone's best guess, Bathhouse John won the alderman election by a record margin. It appeared that Hinky Dink had been able to peddle his colleagues' praises to the patrons of his saloon, and they'd gone out to vote for Bathhouse John. In the years that followed, the two would work the well-oiled machine of corruption and vice that turned the gears of Chicago. But their boom started with a major bust. On the night of October 28th, 1893, Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison answered a knock at his door. Harrison had little to fear from a late-night call, given that he lived so far from the unsavory parts of the city. But as soon as he opened the door, Mayor Harrison was shot dead on his doorstep. He'd been murdered by an associate who'd been denied a position within the mayor's administration. Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink took Harrison's assassination as hard as anyone in the city. After all, the mayor had long been a quiet compatriot of the Democratic boodling scheme. The people of Chicago, though numb to crime, weren't used to this level of violence. The mayor being gunned down on his own doorstep was troubling. Public morale, though, was fickle. With George Bell Swift stepping in as mayor pro tem, Chicago would quickly return to the more exciting development at hand, the Columbian Exposition. Better known as the World's Fair, the Exposition in Chicago attracted swarms of people from around the globe. Many that came, though, were more interested in poking around the notorious city than viewing its exhibits. Many single transient men came to Chicago for the fair and ended up staying for the levy. For the majority of these gentlemen, the temptations on offer were too hard to resist. Right before the turn of the century, drugs were becoming a larger presence in the world of vice. Cocaine and opium were all the rage. It wasn't uncommon for certain levee saloons to feature a secret upstairs parlor where aromatic tobacco smoke gave way to the thicker, acrid stench of burning opium. Of course, none of this was a concern for Bathhouse John or Hinky Dink. The two didn't personally have to deal with the messiness of drug dealing. All they saw was the money. Every $2 brothel or whiskey joint produced an envelope, hand-delivered straight to the Democratic Assembly at Billy Boyle's Chop House. Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink were learning how to cut their teeth as a real criminal outfit, keeping themselves separate from the true dirty work. The two employed bagmen, young men of the first ward who would run from brothel to brothel or saloon to saloon, returning with physical bags of cash. One bagman in particular, Big Jim Colosimo, was making forays into the brothel business himself. Little did Bathhouse John or Hinky Dink know that Big Jim signaled the rise of the Italian crime presence in the ward and beyond, including the eventual reign of Al Capone. But back in 1893, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink had bigger political issues to worry about. With the death of their friend Mayor Harrison, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink warily eyed his replacement, 
an Irish Catholic named John Hopkins. Unlike Harrison, Hopkins saw the writing on the wall when it came to reform. The people of Chicago were tired of the bloody debauchery happening in the levee. They wanted someone who could do something about the working girls, pimps, and junkies on their doorsteps. Translation, the Gray Wolves were set to lose money in the face of Hopkins' burgeoning reform. Without cash coming in from the levee, our dynamic duo needed to pivot its strategy by playing nice with the wealthy and willing railway conglomerates. Hinky Dink realized that the real money was made on the city council. He needed to run for alderman, which would serve two purposes. He'd rise to the same level as Bathhouse John and have equal decision-making power when it came to who invested in his city. From there, he'd be able to strengthen the presence of the first ward on the city council. Which was rather important, because not everyone in Chicago was interested in seeing the levy survive another year. On the surface, Hinky Dink was a shoe-in. He was reputable and well-liked in his ward, and he had a powerful partner in his corner. Despite the fact that Bathhouse John had rubbed some of the aldermen the wrong way, he was confident that his reputation preceded him. But as it turned out, Bathhouse John had made some real enemies, and being associated with him meant inheriting his enemies. Another Democrat, Billy Skakel, had run against Bathhouse John in his first successful bid for alderman, and he was still sorely bitter about the loss. So deep-seated was Skakel's resentment that he did the unthinkable. He backed a Republican candidate to run against Hinky Dink in 1895. The next election, Hinky Dink ran again. This time, Skakel ran against him, and the campaign was vicious. But this time, Hinky Dink wouldn't go down easily. A few days before Election Day, Skakel had planned a fundraising event, a bare-knuckle boxing match. Even those on the fence about Skakel as a candidate were excited to attend. Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink realized they needed to stop the fight to stop Skakel's momentum. But that would only happen with the support of Mayor Hopkins. The two men implored the mayor. Why wouldn't he stand with them, the two most loved characters in the First Ward? Didn't he realize they had the people behind them? The implication here was that Hopkins stood to make as much in bribes as a skilled duo themselves, granted they had his support. On the day of the scheduled brawl, Skakel and his gang were notified that the license for the fight had been revoked per the city of Chicago. Skakel was livid. He sent his supporters into the streets of the First Ward to tear down every hinky-dink poster they could find. Compared to what came next, this was child's play. On the eve of Election Day in 1897, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink hired thugs from the notorious Quincy Street gang to roam the ward looking for anyone who supported Skakel. Their beatings were brutal, but any cop working the first ward that night turned a blind eye to the crimes and in some cases joined in with a club or a swift kick. As Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink rallied support from the safety of the saloon, their hired enforcers wreaked havoc until dawn. Unsurprisingly, Hinky Dink took the election, but with a most perplexing turnout. It seemed that more voters showed up to the polls than were registered to vote in the first ward. 
Skakel raised hell, and the Chicago Tribune, as always, decried the obvious corruption. It was apparent there'd be no recount. Like the other gray wolves, though, Skakel still needed to make money. So he swallowed his bitterness and accepted Hinky Dink's presence on the council. First up on the council's docket, sell away chunks of their city to the gas and electric companies. Two conglomerates were jockeying for the rights to Chicago's electric supply and gas lines, respectively Cosmopolitan Electric and Ogden Gas. Neither company had a well-established reputation. Naturally, the public and the press were highly concerned as to who exactly was behind these utility giants. Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John vocally supported them, though, as did the majority of the city council. They were all in on the secret. These were not real companies. The sole purpose of the shell companies was to sandbag the gas and electric trusts into raising their bribes, all in hopes of winning the coveted contract. The scheme was not a new one, but this time, the press caught on. There was a massive outcry against the blatant dishonesty of the Democrats. Suddenly, the idea of a Republican-run council was almost appetizing to the people of the First Ward. In the next election, Republicans were voted onto the council, with Hinky Dink powerless to stop the conservative wave. But the lapse in power didn't last long. Over the next year, using his tried-and-true method of bribing voters and rigging elections, Hinky Dink worked doggedly to build the city council's Democratic base back up. Somehow, in spite of the public support for Republicans, he managed to turn the levy in his favor once again. And with apparently limitless power, Hinky Dink started thinking bigger. His next scheme would be the biggest moneymaker yet. Coming up, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink go for broke. Now back to the story. One night in 1898, Bathhouse John Coughlin and Hinky Dink Kenna met at the Working Man's Exchange. Bathhouse John lamented the police interference with the Lame Jimmy Party, an annual event held to celebrate a disabled musician and fixture at one of the local brothels. Bathhouse John loved a party, but he was upset with the police's insistence on breaking up the event over something as silly as a brawl or two. What a thing it would be, Bathhouse John wondered, if they could somehow revive the shindig. Hinky Dink saw Bathhouse John's idea for what it really was, a fundraising opportunity. With that, the planning began. The annual event started small, hosted at a local dance hall, but soon outgrew the venue. It was moved to the massive Chicago Coliseum. Bathhouse John made the rounds at the local hotspots advertising the event. Hinky Dink, meanwhile, organized the liquor. Liquor was particularly important. It was a cash cow for the aldermen to make their money. Shrewd as ever, Hinky also coordinated with the local police force. He felt it was important that cops attend the party. If they were inside drinking, they wouldn't be able to deal with any complaints from the neighbors. The guest list ran the gamut from the most esteemed councilman to the newest working girl on the block. But few guests were as important and as revered as the Everly sisters, two of the most successful madams in American history. The Everly sisters came to Chicago with one goal in mind, 
to open the most successful, opulent brothel in the city. Sex work, of course, was not anything new. The average working girl arrived in the city in her mid to late teens and paid rent to a saloon owner, someone like Hinky Dink, for room and board. She met clients in the bars and brought them upstairs. Some girls were unfortunate enough to take their work out onto the streets, an opportunistic pimp trailing behind them. Outliers persisted, though. Some women had the luxury of working under a madam in an established brothel. Here, violence was less common, but still present. Virtually nothing could prevent an angry client from acting out against a girl. The Everly sisters didn't like all that mess. So their self-named establishment, even in its early years, gained a reputation for luxury. The Everly Club boasted exotic furnishings and palm fronds decorated the ceilings. The sisters entertained guests in the main hall of the club, where they ingratiated themselves with local politicians, policemen, judges, and even newsmen who were known to frequent the club in droves. No detail was too small. Even their ads broadcasted that the club was a cut above. Only experienced working girls need apply, and they needed references, not something a typical street pimp would willingly provide. Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John were nothing if not devout supporters of small businesses. They heartily endorsed the club. They had good reason to. In the decade or so of the club's reign as the most well-known brothel in Chicago, the duo collected an estimated $10 million from the sisters. In today's money, that'd be an astounding $300 million. The sisters never skimped on their protection payments. All envelopes were handed off in person and on time, though it's said that Bathhouse John never once stepped foot in the club itself instead sending a proxy to collect payment. With their fine commission from the Everly Club, among other protection payments, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John were free to take on more frivolous pursuits. Bathhouse John's reputation often preceded him. He was known for wearing loud colors and fine silks that were, more often than not, inappropriate for meeting with constituents in a dusty saloon. He played ambassador of Chicago to a number of parties across the nation, at one point visiting New York City's famed Tammany Hall. There he advised the Democrats on the finer points of fixing an election. Meanwhile, Hinky Dink was content to stay in Chicago, opening saloon after saloon and soon expanding into the world of gambling. For the next decade and a half, Bathhouse John, Hinky Dink, and the rest of the Grey Wolves had Chicago under their thumb, raking in millions from kickbacks. But the death knell for the levy came in 1908, thanks to a particularly frigid First Ward Ball. Though it was hardly noticed by the partygoers, the side atrium of the Chicago Coliseum had been bombed the day before the ball. The details remain a mystery but it's widely believed that a reform sympathizer had hurled the bomb through the window, appalled by the upcoming display of corruption. At the time, the attack wasn't thought of as a serious threat, but it did mark a change in public opinion. And the following year, the city denied Bathhouse John the liquor license for his event. The First Ward Ball was never held again. 
The mayor at the time, Fred A. Bussey, was not himself a reformer. Quite the opposite, in fact. However, his full acceptance of corruption in the First Ward was only putting himself in the crosshairs. He decided it was time to clean up the levee. At first, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink were mostly unconcerned. The machine of corruption was too powerful for any one mayor to overturn. Plus, the aldermen drew money from so many places, even shutting down half of the levee wouldn't do much to hurt their bottom line. But the crippling blow came when the city shut down the Everly Club in 1911. Not even they could save the brothel. Shutting down the club sent a clear message that sex work was not to be a part of this city's legacy. As the vice commission ran through the rest of the levy, lower-level prostitutes and pimps were arrested. This had a chilling ripple effect on the entire levy. Suddenly, everyone was too afraid to do so much as serve a beer after hours. But it wasn't so much that crime stopped in the First Ward and elsewhere. It simply adapted. Under new management, that is. A trio of infamous criminals were in attendance at the last First Ward Ball in 1908. Brothel owner Big Jim Colosimo, a former bagman for Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink, Jim's right-hand man, Johnny Torrio, and Torrio's young associate, Alphonse Capone. To Al Capone, the display of opulence and wealth was an inspiration. The power Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink had wasn't lost on him. But a brutal takeover of their racket was out of the question. Capone saw no use in riling up the First Ward over the deaths of its folk heroes. So in the years leading up to Prohibition, Al Capone let the older men live as they always had been. He knew they were all on the way out. Bathhouse John, well into his 60s and in poor health, was spending untold sums at the racetrack. He was in no position to make any more power moves. And Hinky Dink, also in his upper 60s, was savvy as always. He saw no benefit in angering the rising mafia power. This gave way for Capone and his associates to exploit the framework of bribery and illegality that defined both Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink's time as aldermen. Bathhouse John himself died in 1938 all but penniless from pursuing what some considered his true passion, betting on horses. To Hinky Dink, this was a sign that it was time to retire. He was old, tired, and made more than enough from his candy and snack shops. Through their system of graft and political influence, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink laid the groundwork for decades' worth of corruption. They opted against the interests of the public for personal gain, always proving that they valued themselves and anyone that supported them above all others. Today, the two are part of Chicago folklore. On any tour of the city, you'll be sure to hear about the champions of vice, Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink, and how they gave Chicago its romantic reputation as a place where sex workers and card players alike could have some fun. No mention is made of the cost of their actions to the people of Chicago. And unlike so many of the characters in our countdown, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John suffered zero consequences for their actions.
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the story of disgraced former governor George Ryan. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Kate Peruzzi with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>